Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight in France, they call them punaises de lit. We know them as bed bugs. And while Paris's intense infestation is making headlines right around the world, especially ahead of the 2024 Olympics, we pull back the sheets on how bad a bed bug problem we have here at home. It's time for our monthly segment called A Little More True Crime. And for that, we head to Edmonton, where it's now been 15 years since the disappearance and murder of 38-year-old Johnny Altender. He was lured to a garage in the city by what he thought was a woman, but turned out to be independent filmmaker and now convicted killer Mark Twitchell, whose obsession with the show Dexter would earn him the name The Dexter Killer. Journalist and author Steve Lillibune covered the trial and then wrote a book called The Devil's Cinema, the untold story behind Mark Twitchell's kill room. We speak to him about the case and his extensive correspondence with Twitchell. But first, the latest Israeli-Palestinian conflict reverberated across the region and around the globe again today. Triggered by Saturday's surprise Hamas incursion, a terrorist incursion, the deadliest militant attack in Israeli history, with the death toll now above a thousand. Israel, of course, has retaliated with persistent airstrikes on Gaza. Some 350,000 Israeli soldiers are massed on the border. We speak to Canada's former ambassador to Israel about the attack and the fallout, and to two people here in Canada who've had loved ones targeted by Hamas in those deadly incursions. You know, Friday night as I was leaving work, those first news alerts started to emerge about something happening uh, along the border with Gaza in southern Israel. And all of a sudden it became quite clear that something very big was happening, something we hadn't seen happen before, at least not to the scale at which it was unfolding. And as Saturday started to as it became more clear on Saturday, we realized that we were witnessing something very deadly and potentially something very dangerous uh, in, in terms of what the reaction would be. So here we are Tuesday, uh, the latest Israeli-Palestinian conflict reverberates around the world still. Foreign governments are trying to figure out how to get many of their citizens home, how many are dead and missing, uh, and so forth. Today, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says Ottawa is planning to airlift Canadian citizens, permanent residents, their spouses and their kids out of Tel Aviv in the coming days. All of this, as I was mentioning, triggered by what began to happen late Friday night Pacific time, overnight Eastern time, and early in the morning on Saturday in Israel itself as Hamas uh, carried out a surprise incursion, the deadliest militant attack in Israeli history, where the death toll has now risen to more than 1,000 people. Of course, many of them were families, uh, people at a techno festival, a dance festival, um, civilians, really. There has been unequivocal condemnation of this attack. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden addressed the violence today, saying that U.S. has Israel's back and they'll make sure Israel can defend itself. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst, the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. Now, Hamas would know what the reaction to this would be, and the Israeli military, of course, is going ahead with a fierce offensive of airstrikes in Gaza, uh, has claimed at least 830 lives already, and has caused widespread destruction. Hamas has taken hostages, many. We don't know exactly how many, but many. They are threatening to kill them. Here is Thomas Juneau of the University of Ottawa. Something of this scale and of this type has simply never happened before. So we cannot look at any kind of precedent and try to evaluate or assess what Israel's response could be. There definitely will be significant pressure on Netanyahu to take a hard line. 
That, of course, is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. An official at the International Committee of the Red Cross says his organization has been in touch with both Hamas and Israeli officials about accessing prisoners, but so far have had no access to them. Fabrizio Carboni also says he's concerned about the civilian population in Gaza. What we've seen is way too many people wounded, killed, and basic principle of humanity which have not been respected. And what we fear... Uh, it's that what will come in the coming days and weeks. Right. John Allen is Canada's former ambassador to Israel and to Spain. He's now a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. And he joins me now. John, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. Your reaction, I guess, I mean, I, I have obviously spent many years covering uh, events in the Middle East, and, and, and uh, your just reaction to what happened over on Saturday morning, because this feels like something that has just never happened before, and it's hard to begin, hard to know where to begin in many ways. Yeah, it's very true. It, it, it has never happened before in this way. Um, there have been attacks, uh, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, um, other attacks, um, the Golan Heights, um, and but never has the the 1967 borders of Israel been penetrated the way they were uh, on the weekend. Uh, it was an odd, very strange kind of penetration because this was not um, bombs. This was not tanks. Um, this was blowing a, a, some holes in a fence and having what now appears to be 12 to 1400 Hamas uh, terrorists come through the fence and with rifles, automatic rifles, begin shooting people wherever they found them. And uh, I think. Uh, to be honest, I think their luck was beyond their wildest dreams. They couldn't believe that there was no one there to stop them, and they couldn't believe they, they could just roam around uh, in the most horrific way and, um, and mow down uh, so many people and then, of course, kidnap them. So this is, this is different. Um, there was an intelligence failure in, 70, in 1973 in Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. This took place 50 years plus a day after. I'm, I'm sure that Hamas planned it that way uh, to embarrass the Israelis. Um, and um, uh, it has affected the, the psyche, uh, the sense of uh, security, um, uh, and the sense that uh, to, there was a certain hubris of invulnerability that uh, Israel had. And I think that's been shaken to their core. For, for listeners who may forget, or if for whom, and for many of us, it remains confusing when one talks about, you know, where the Palestinians live, the West Bank, Gaza, the state of Israel itself. A bit about, sure. John, just a bit about Hamas and, and their aims, because we've wound up in a situation that if you weren't following closely, things have evolved over the last 25 years. And, the, and Gaza under Hamas has become a very different place than perhaps one who might think back to a Yasser Arafat might be used to in terms of how this has all unfolded. Sure. So you've got Gaza, which is a, a very tiny piece of land with 2.3 million people in it. Um, there was an election in 2005 
which uh, surprise, surprise, uh, Hamas won over the uh, Fatah party, which was Yasser Arafat's party. And then in 2007, they they essentially took over Gaza uh, through uh, the party of Yasser Arafat out, and they have controlled it with an iron fist since then. There's been no election, um, and uh, soon thereafter, the world declared Hamas a terrorist organization, and Israel uh, essentially sealed the Gaza Strip. So there's an exit to Egypt, which is sealed. There's two exits to Israel, which are sealed. Um, the airspace is sealed, and the sea area is sealed. Um, so you've got um, uh, this this organization that's affiliated with Iran and with Hezbollah, although they are Shia and yeah. and Hamas is Sunni, yeah. and uh, they rule the place. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the the Palestinians who live there are the ones that are suffering. They're suffering under the closure that Israel imposes, and they're suffering under the rule of Hamas. And um, and one has to have a lot of sympathy for those people as well. When you look at how this was carried out, clearly Hamas knew what the reaction would be to carry out this brutal an attack where civilians were mowed down, defenseless civilians, often you know families, the elderly, kids at a techno festival they knew this would be the reaction um what was i mean in this what was the aim do you think of hamas to do this and you you mentioned it earlier to destabilize and humiliate israel but the reaction is going to be absolutely brutal uh and they're going to be standing in the in the way of it i one expects yeah well a few things first of all ben this is the sixth time that there has been attacks from gaza that have resulted in a response for Israel. So when you say they know what was coming or they knew what was coming, there's no question about it because it's happened time and time again. And there have been a couple of times when there actually have been ground incursions, which is what may be happening this time. So Hamas knows that. Why do they do it? Because they want to be seen and they want to be the defenders of the Palestinian people. They don't want uh, the Palestinian Authority to have any credit. They don't want them to be seen as leaders. So Hamas engages in these efforts, says that it's doing it because it's protecting the Alaska Mosque, says it's doing it because it opposes the occupation, there are uh, there are views that suggest that together with Iran and Hezbollah, they did it because they wanted to put the kibosh to the Israel-U.S.-Saudi deal that was being negotiated, uh, which might have benefited the Palestinians, and any such benefit would have gone to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and not to Hamas. So there's there's multiple reasons why they might have done it, why they did it when they did. Um, but ultimately, it's because they want to be seen as the defenders of the Palestinian people. Ironically, 
what it also means is that the Palestinian people in Gaza are going to suffer horribly, as has already begun to happen. Now, the other difference uh, with this scenario is that um, between Islamic Jihad and Hamas, they appear to be holding somewhere, as you said, between 100 and 150 hostages. Now, that makes any kind of either the bombing or an incursion incredibly difficult if you want to somehow protect or um, swap or free those hostages. Uh, Does Canada have much pull in the region anymore? Is there a role that we can play here, or is this pretty much down to the Americans and others? Uh, I think you're right, Ben. Uh, We don't have much of a role. We've got uh, a fair number of Canadian tourists there. We've got a fair number of Canadian Israelis uh, en place. Um, We uh, still have uh, a few peacekeepers up in uh, Lebanon, uh, a very few. Uh, we no longer have any peacekeepers in Gaza, uh, uh, on the other side of uh, the Gaza is uh, the other side of, uh, of uh, the Syrian border mm-hmm. in the Golan. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a, a, a large presence, and we don't really have a, a major role in security or intelligence. This, as you said, is a an Israel-U.S. game. Uh, They have very, very tight intelligence, uh, military cooperation, uh, and um, uh, Israel will determine what it wants to do, but as it needs American munitions, as it needs American equipment, uh, resupply for its Iron Dome, uh, it will be listening to the Americans. Uh, and uh, the Americans also have a number of hostages, uh, so there'll be a, a dialogue there. Our role is going to be to get our Canadians out, as you mentioned, uh, with an airlift, because uh, Air Canada is not flying. And if the situation uh, up north uh, from Lebanon gets more serious, then uh, you may see a lot of people wanting to get out of Israel for uh, the period of of a possible two-flank or three-flank war. John, you were in the middle of this for, so, for, for quite a while. Um, when you look at what's happened in the last, in the last few days, uh, how concerned are you about where this could go? Because, again, it feels like we're in some uncharted territory. Absolutely. Um, there has been mortar fire uh, from Lebanon, from Hezbollah. Hezbollah is much, much larger, much, much more dangerous has many, many more rockets, more long-range rockets than uh, did or does Hamas. So if they decided to enter the fray um, and Israel had to operate on two fronts, and if the West Bank decided to blow um, and there has been increased violence there uh, over the past year, uh, then Israel could be in, in in trouble. I'm not saying that it's going to lose a war, but um, it would really be stretched. Um, the last war in Lebanon took its toll both politically and militarily. 
uh, ultimately Israel won, but Hezbollah declared victory. We've already got a situation where Hamas has declared victory. Um, so uh, it, 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 there are, are significant potential problems. And if you go back to the to the weakened psyche and the and the unbelievability of what happened over the weekend, then um, yes, you, uh, you you begin to wonder uh, about Israel and its future, etc. Yeah, I have about 30 seconds. I was wanted to get to this earlier, but didn't have the time. Israel was already having internal issues. Netanyahu is going to be in, in going to have to answer some questions about this. This was a huge failure on his part. Huge, huge failure. I mean, Bibi is gone. Uh, whether whether he enters into a, a national unity government, um, both Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid have demanded that he get rid of his radical right ministers. If he enters into a national unity government, uh, they will govern while the war is on. There will be an inquiry, and uh, and and Bibi will not last. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for your insight on this one. I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity. Thank you, Ben. In the last half hour, we were speaking with Canada's former ambassador to Israel, John Allen, about all that's unfolded there since early Saturday morning, the horrors of the Hamas attack on innocent civilians uh, just across the border from Gaza uh, and the geopolitical impact of that. Of course, as that continues to unfold, it is easy sometimes to lose sight of the very real loss and pain that this past weekend has brought for so many families, including here in Canada. We know that at least two Canadians, 33-year-old Alex Look of Montreal and 22-year-old Ben Mizrahi of Vancouver, have been confirmed dead, both during an ambush at that outdoor music festival where thousands had gathered. At least 260 have been killed. There are Canadian citizens believed to have been taken hostage, including Winnipeg-born Vivian Silver, who is quite a well-known activist, a peace activist, um, and a longtime member of the Barry Kibbutz on the Gaza border. She had for many years again volunteered to help Palestinians in Gaza in need of medical aid in Israel. And there were similar scenes of horror at another kibbutz some 50 kilometers away from there. Uh, Braha Levinson lived less than a kilometer from the Gaza border in a community called Nizor. Uh, Hamas gunmen also targeted that small community of about 300 homes, burning many to the ground, attacking people, many of them older many of them unarmed, families taking some hostage. Uh, Jonathan Dekel Chen is one of the residents. Uh, he's a professor. He lives there. He was speaking today about his missing 35-year-old son. I have children and grandchildren who live there with me. Kibbutz Niroz is no more. It was destroyed in a barbaric, inhuman attack in which dozens of my friends, my neighbors were killed Many dozens more are either known to be hostages or missing. That was Jonathan Dekel-Chen talking about uh, Kibbutz Niraz. Uh, now, thousands of kilometers away, well, well far away in Kamloops, BC, uh, my next guest was watching those events unfold on Saturday morning. Uh, Yoav Shimoni joins me now from Kamloops. Yoav, thank you so much. And I don't even know where to begin to express sort of the depths of our condolences to you and your family about what happened over the weekend. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's definitely not been an easy few days. And, no. Um, I'm very sorry to hear about the other story from Niroz, and it's just another another addition to the flow of stories that I'm hearing 
besides yeah. of the horrific way that I found out about my grandmother's death, which was just when the missile started. Um, the, uh, after confirming her safety, and after she confirmed her safety, um, we saw, like about 10 minutes after that, we saw a video on her Facebook that we figured to have been posted by the terrorists after shooting her down of her dying body surrounded with blood and oh. with men with guns standing over her. For, and, you know, for people, yeah, for people, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that and that's one of hundreds of stories, as you just said, like I, I'm just even looking right now at my grandma's best friend and one of the neighbors where the, the man of the family is like a 78 year old man was trying to protect his wife as the terrorists tried to infiltrate the shelter and they shot him through the window and dragged her like an eight year old baby mm-hmm. and kidnapped her and she's currently still held in Gaza as you have one of the things that I, that that's so tragic here too is and I, and I, you you can I think you you can explain this and maybe you you must know that perhaps a Canadian under audience doesn't really know much about the kibbutz life but these were these were people committed to to many good things exactly it was a very much community based like village in its origins like you know, when it started it was a communist village where everyone contributed the same everyone got the same everyone worked for one another everyone knew each other everyone raised each other's kids and it's it's just it was where I, I spent my summers as well, where I had most of my most fond childhood memories. It's the place I also ironically felt the safest at as a kid, where I would, it was able from like three, four years old to roam around freely up until two weeks ago when I last saw my grandmother for Rosh Hashanah. For you, there must be. I, I know you're in Kamloops now because I believe your your girlfriend is studying at Thompson Rivers, and 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 you're also doing some work here. The, the urge to go home, and the urge to not go home, must be both almost inexplicable to someone who doesn't understand, such as such as myself. One hundred percent. It's. I feel helpless from over here. I see even my mother, who is obviously also gone through the most horrific traumas right now, seeing her like childhood home and community burned to the ground has now been for the past few days, been in a lot in the South of Israel, helping all of the survivors, bringing food, medicine, shelter, and all of my friends back home in Israel now going in, in the reserves and fighting for our safety. I just, I honestly feel helpless from here, and I wish I could do more. Do you feel, and, and this, if this is a question you, you don't want to answer, then please don't. But do you, I, I've been reading articles about, I mean, the, 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 the kibbutz where your grandmother lived was a very well-known one. Uh, there were a lot of people who lived there, called it home. Um, is there any sense of, of, of anger about how long it took, that it wasn't protected? That it was, that it was, that there wasn't enough there to protect these people who would sacrifice essentially sacrifice their lives in many ways to build this country i mean the kibbutz you know the, the kibbutz culture is sort of built israel in many ways you fed it and yet they were left to their own devices in some senses when the worst came 
yeah, the anger doesn't only come from there. It, it comes from the failure of the intelligence and security system in Israel. I assume for the past few years to allow this to be planned in the first place and to be carried out after the fact. The fact that we were so arrogant about how safe we thought we were. And again, that also applies to me as I was in the kibbutz two weeks ago with not thinking that anything will go wrong. Yeah. What what, what would you like Canadians to know? You know, sometimes you you must know living here that maybe people don't know much about where you're from or where your grandmother was lived and the life she lived. What would you like us to know tonight? First of all, especially in the kibbutz, it's the most liberal, accepting, and open communities that I've ever seen, even after living in Canada. And I just, and the fact that those are the people that were targeted first, and especially the elderly, young children, women that not only were unarmed, but we're trying to hide away and run from the terrors that are happening. It's not, it, it's, this is not a war. This is, as many said, uh, it's almost like a second Holocaust or a massacre, which is what I think many Canadians don't understand is under the Hamas covenant mm-hmm. in the Article 7, it literally says to kill all the Jews. Or, which is what right now. Yeah. And, and you know, just reading about, about everyone who lived there, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine what's happened. You have, again, you know, your, your grandmother sounds like she was just one of those people who sacrificed a lifetime to build something. And it was all just eliminated in, in such a, such a flash when I, I'm sure it's almost, I don't think anybody has been able to come to terms with, with just the, le- the level of, of the level of, of evil that unfolded in that, in that region on Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend. It was actually when we first saw the video, because there hasn't, the government and the news have not confirmed the infiltration of the terrorists into Israel mm-hmm. up until like three hours after we've seen the videos. We were on disbelief. We all I, we all didn't want to believe what we saw up until, unfortunately, it was finally confirmed. Well, you have again my my really deepest condolences to you and your entire family. I can't imagine how one gets so one sort of moves on from this, but I hope you find strength in the support that you and and everyone from from Neuros is getting from around the world right now. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing the story and sharing the story of the other people from near Oz. We've heard from John Allen, Canada's former ambassador to Canada, a little earlier in the show, and just now from Yoav Shimoni, whose grandmother uh, was one of those killed in the near Oz kibbutz uh, in southern, on the Gazan border uh, just over the weekend, and just the tragedy and, and just the devastation for his family. He's back here. He's in Canada, of course, uh, in BC, but the impact that it's had on him. Uh, you know, people have taken to the streets across Canada the past two nights to express their outrage at the attack on civilians, including the elderly and the children. Of course, Yoav's grandmother was in her late 70s, including one late today in Vancouver. I mentioned earlier that two Canadians have been confirmed uh, dead, uh, including a 33-year-old Montrealer, Alex Look, and a 22-year-old from Vancouver, Ben Mizrahi. They were both attending 
that outdoor music festival where hundreds of unarmed people were uh, were slain, were attacked, defenseless. People were attacked by by terrorists who'd crossed over the border. Uh, Ezra Shankin is CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Victoria, or Vancouver rather. He sat with the parents of Ben Mizrahi over the weekend as they learned that their son was missing. I am absolutely numb. I'm probably like on on the brink of if somebody pushes me a little bit, I'll just start crying. Like that's kind of where I am. Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Nico, uh, Nikos Labinsky is vice president of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, are at the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. He also had family members right in the line of fire on Saturday at that very same music festival. He was at that rally tonight in Vancouver, and he joins me now. Nico, thank you so much. Thank you for having me back. Tell me a bit about tonight, because I think it was really important that you saw a good turnout and that you were together to just just share. I mean, I, I know it's been a tough time for so many people who felt isolated with all this unfolding a world away. You're absolutely correct. But tonight was an opportunity for the Jewish community, for the pro-Israel community and for Vancouver from all walk of life to come together to say no to terror, to say no to Hamas and to express their support for the people of Israel and for the land of Israel. And for me personally, it was a very emotional moment because I was able to feel embraced by the community after living through the horror of the weekend, which included not being able to look at my sister for a few hours as she was attending the very same music festival that you mentioned. Yeah, Nico, tell me about that, because I understand, I mean, that music festival, so many of, of the faces we've seen, the young faces who lost their lives that at that festival, just not being able to find your sister must have been, must have been terrifying. It was terrifying. It was horrific. As we started to hear the news coming out of Israel, uh, my first instinct was to not only get to work for my community, but try to find my family, my sister, my father, who lived there as I have lived there myself with them. And I couldn't locate my sister. And uh, we quickly understood that her and her boyfriend were at the music festival. This was a music festival for peace, a music festival for love, that was being attended by thousands of young Israelis, and that was infiltrated by the murderous kind of Hamas terrorists that started uh, firing bullets at music goers, music festival goers uh, in Point Blank. You know, as, as part of your, you are VP of the CIJA for the Pacific region. We know that one of those who was who lost their lives at that very same festival was a young Vancouverite, uh, Ben Mizrahi. That too, the impact on the community as well must be devastating. The community is devastated. The community is in shock. The Mizrahi family are respected and an integral part of our community. Uh, ben is no longer with us. Ben has been murdered. Ben was taken from us and was taken from his family. May his memory be for a blessing. We are all in mourning for Ben at the moment. What What would you like to see? I mean, how, what is your assessment of of the reactions so far from the Canadian, from different levels of government, from the Canadian government? Have you Have you heard what you want to, what you've wanted to hear from the Prime Minister, from the premiers across this country? You know what? Well, that's That's an excellent question, and I have to say that the Jewish community, the pro-Israel community feels so embraced by the three different levels of government, from the prime minister to the premier to senior ministers in both levels of government to the mayors of major Canadian cities. All our political leaders have come out and unequivocally condemned the modern-day terror pogrom that Hamas, Hamas unleashed on Israeli civilians over the weekend. 
And that is important because that is a shared value that Canadians and Israelis have in denouncing terrorism. One of the big challenges ahead, no doubt, and we're seeing this begin now, is that with the hostages taken, and you mentioned that earlier, uh, with Canadians in Israel, and there are many at this point in time, is just trying to get everyone home safely. And that must be something that the CIJA has been in, been in contact with the government about, because I'm sure people are coming to yeah. you as well as going through, going through the government or going through the embassy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, we as a community uh, are grappling with two things. There are Canadians and Israelis here who want to go back to Israel to be with their families there and to help Israel defend itself from terror aggression at the moment. And then there are Canadians residing in Israel at the moment who uh, want to come back to Canada to be with their loved ones through this difficult time. So, of course, we're trying to do everything that we can to help. Getting to Israel or out of Israel at the moment is not easy. And one of the things that we are looking forward and we're looking up to is for the Canadian government to organize humanitarian flights to help Israelis, Canadian Israelis uh, get out of the country, if so they wish. Right, because I understand, of course, for now, there are very few flights going in and out, if any, uh, specifically to Tel Aviv, but it's been, it's been very much shut down. And different governments are, are trying to find ways to bring people in, but it cannot be easy logistically. At the moment, it's not easy. There's very few commercial airliners that are still flying to and from Israel. So we hope to see some you know, development in the next few days so Canadians residing there uh, can come back to Canada and be reunited with their families during this very difficult time. Nico, when you look ahead here, and I think I was speaking to John Allen, the former Canadian ambassador to Israel earlier, um, and to Yoav Shimoni, who's an Israeli in Kamloops who lost his grandmother over the weekend. Mm-hmm. People, this is a, we're in uncharted territory here. How worried are you about what lies ahead for, for you and for your country? I am very concerned for what lies ahead, but I can tell you that Israelis are resilient. Israelis uh, have nowhere to go. They're fighting for their homeland. And Israel, Israel will prevail. Israel will defeat terror. Terror has to be uprooted from Gaza. We need to free Hamas. We need to free Gaza from Hamas. Nico, I'm glad to hear your father and your sister are okay. And thank you so much for sharing your time with me tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. We're going to go back in time and we're going to travel just a little bit away from where I, from where I am tonight for our monthly A Little More True Crime segment. It takes us tonight to Edmonton because tonight marks an auspicious, tragic anniversary. Really, it was on this day, 15 years ago, October 10th, 2008, that Johnny Altinger vanished after answering an online dating ad. The 38-year-old believed he was going to meet a woman named Jen and was given a set of directions to get him to a South Edmonton garage. But instead of a dream date, it turned out he was stepping into something far different, a murder plot concocted and carried out by 31-year-old Mark Twitchell. Twitchell murdered and dismembered Altinger. Here is some of the global reporting from the time. After three long weeks of waiting for any word from Johnny Altinger, police arrested a man Friday they say is responsible for his disappearance and his death. 29-year-old Mark Twitchell, husband, father, and independent filmmaker, charged with first-degree murder. It was definitely planned. It was definitely, um, he had put a lot of thought into it, a lot of work into it. 
Yeah, Carolyn Jarvis reporting there, 29-year-old, by the way, Mark Twitchell at the time. The culmination of an obsession, it turned out, with film. He was an independent filmmaker in Edmonton and the fictional serial killer Dexter Morgan from the Showtime series of the time. He was a blood spatter expert in Miami, a cop living a double life as a sort of vigilante serial killer. Twitchell was an aspiring, again, film producer and filmmaker. He was also a husband and father of a young child. He developed an obsession with the TV series. In fact, he'd made a short movie called House of Cards about it uh, just a few weeks earlier in the same garage that was about a man being lured through a dating site and murdered. That was in many ways a tribute to the Dexter series. And I only really feel like myself when I'm surrounded by blood. We have a lot of information that suggests he definitely idolizes Dexter. And um, a lot of information that he tried to emulate him during this incident. Now, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 2011, but here we are 15 years later. Steve Lillibune wrote a 2013 book on the case called The Devil's Cinema, The Untold Story Behind Mark Twitchell's Kill Room. It was winner of the 2013 uh, Best Nonfiction at the Arthur Ellis Awards, and he's also an assistant professor of journalism at McEwen University in Edmonton. And we thought we'd revisit this case tonight because it's been 15 years, and just to see what the continued impact has been uh, on all those involved. Steve, thanks so much for your time tonight. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell me how you first got involved in the case. I guess you were working, you were a crime reporter, right, at the time. Yeah, that's right. I was um, working at the Edmonton Journal, and I was working on the the crime desk and had been, you know, covering um, a variety of, I guess, high-profile crimes, mostly in Edmonton, but through kind of northern Alberta as well. And that's when, in that fall of 2008, this case of, you know, missing man Johnny Altinger was one of the stories that I ended up covering. I mean, from there, I, I mean, I've, I, I did crime as well. And, and you sort of, not many cases are ones they sort of, there's always kind of, um, I mean, there's usually sort of an obvious answer to what has happened, right? And then this one, I, when you start pulling the strings, uh, it becomes, I mean, well, here we are talking about it 15 years later. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, I had covered a, a lot of different crimes and, you know, they kind of fall into a general pattern after a while of the types of crimes you would cover and just what the police were alleging at the time upon Mark Twitchell's arrest was extraordinary, right? They were, some of the clips you're playing was, you know, the lead detective, Mark Anstey, talking about how they had evidence that Mark Twitchell uh, was inspired by Dexter and was trying to emulate the character um, so that's what drew me in and why I kept reporting on it was this, I was just fascinated about this idea of a, a, a new motive and a new way of committing crime that we had not seen before, this kind of digital age way of committing a murder. Yeah, I guess if one thinks back to 2008, the idea of luring someone on a web, you know, luring someone on a dating site and so on was still pretty new, right? I mean, it feels feels more common now, but then it was something that would have been different. Tell me a bit about Johnny Altinger, because we tend to not talk about the tragedy and all this. And that was, I was thinking he would have been in his early 50s by now. We're about the same age. Um, He seemed like a really normal guy just looking for love. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, I think of Johnny uh, often when I was writing the book and, you know, I interviewed his friends and and spoke with his family and, and, you know, I've thought of him uh, a lot through the years. And yeah, he was just a, uh, I guess, a typical Gen Xer, right, that he kind of grew up in a transition where the internet, kind of early internet age occurred while he was in his, um, 
kind of late 20s, early 30s, and he was one of the first adopters. So, you know, he was uh, really active on news groups and message boards back when you just had the little modem that you had to, you know, connect if you were right. lucky to have, uh, um, you know, something like that. And uh, and had a really, really big network of friends from those days, from the early uh, internet. So, um, you know, that was the uh, an element of that that I found uh, compelling was this idea that someone who was so savvy with computers had been, um, you know, taken advantage of in such a way that he was trying to find companionship through a dating site and had no idea what was about to happen to him. And Mark Twitchell, too, as you've pointed out before you point out in the book and in other places, uh, showed absolutely no signs. I mean, he seemed, he was obviously somewhat eccentric. He had this obsession with with becoming sort of a Hollywood filmmaker from a garage in Edmonton, which in of itself is a bit quirky, uh, but yet yeah. showed absolutely no signs of, of, being, of being what he became. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, that was the missing piece that kept me researching the case was that you know, what, what made this guy tick and, you know, how could you do something so horrific? And there's no, there's no warning sign. You know, I, I recall vividly um, calling some of Mark Twitchell's friends shortly after he was arrested and they were adamant that had to be a big misunderstanding. Like the guy they knew was just a quirky Star Wars fan who had dreams of making it big in Hollywood. He was not violent. He had no criminal record. You know, he was, um, you know, a kind of a, a clever kind of geeky guy, um, but certainly nothing that would you would ever be scared of the person. So um, that was the, the fascinating aspect of this, that you could have this hidden side to your personality that even your you know closest friends and family wouldn't couldn't didn't realize that that was actually the case. Yeah, I, I guess for, for those of us who, who sort of followed it a bit when it was happening and then and then look at it in hindsight, the hindsight is easy. You know, he makes a film that sort of spells out what's about to happen. But at the time, because, there's you know, people who worked with him on those movies have been interviewed, not a hint, right? Even though he was sort of creating this this the script i guess it's called house of cards where where someone is lured in, in exactly the same way that that johnny altinger was lured yeah i i spoke with people that worked on that film with him and it was just supposed to be this little weekend horror film script that they were trying to put together to try to attract more financiers to support their their film production company and there was no hint that this was um, a blueprint for the real thing, which Mark Twitchell went back to the film set, you know, a week or two later after they had shot this this movie. So, yeah, there was no there's no sense of that, that they were just shooting a horror script that was uh, a ripoff of Dexter. And and it was supposed to be just a little project. And uh, no one on the film set had any idea that there was this subtext in terms of what was going on in, in Mark Twitchell's head. When you start covering this story, at what point, I mean, we heard from the police there, and that was after he was arrested, but at what point do you start to get the inkling that this is not going to be uh, sort of your a run-of-the-mill missing person story, that this is something much more much more bizarre, really? Yeah, it was. this was a really strange case because, um, like, Johnny had been reported missing, and I remember writing those initial uh, reports, and there really wasn't much to the story because um, police weren't saying there was any foul play suspected. Just it was out of character here for him to disappear. Um, and it wasn't until it was actually on Halloween when Mark Twitchell was arrested. But then it was revealed um, that there was all of this evidence linking Mark Twitchell to Johnny Altinger 
uh, and he was no longer considered a missing person, but uh, a murder victim. Um, that then it unraveled from there in terms of, you know, wh- what are the what did the evidence did the police have? And from there, it just kept getting more and more bizarre uh, in terms of the evidence they found in the garage and sort of a, a lot of written materials that Mark Twitchell had left behind as well. And and that's when I was able to think, wow, I, I, if if something happens to me, I, my family will never know what happened to me or if it, they would never see me again. So at that point, I said, well, before he, I knew he was going to tie my hands up soon. So I said, I got to act now if I'm going to do anything. And that's when I decided I'm going to fight back. That is the voice of Jill Tetro. He became known as the one who got away. I'm speaking with Steve Lillibun. He is a journalism professor or assistant professor at McCune University in Edmonton. He's also wrote a book 10 years ago called The Devil's Cinema, the untold story behind Mark Twitchell's Kill Room. We're talking about the Mark Twitchell case tonight because it has been exactly 15 years since the disappearance of Johnny Altinger, which would be which would unleash the entire story behind Mark Twitchell and the so-called Dexter Killer. But it turned out that he had made a movie two weeks earlier in that garage of his and then a week after that had lured somebody else to that garage under these false pretenses of being a woman looking for a date uh jill tetro uh steve this when the story begins to unfold some of what happens becomes almost inconceivable that he would have done this again and so soon after with johnny altinger after what had happened with jill tetro yeah absolutely yeah and we um you know, the public, we weren't aware of this until the day Mark Twitchell was arrested and the detective mm-hmm. actually held up this um, a photograph of a kind of black painted um, hockey mask, like something you would see from a horror film and saying, is, if anyone has encountered someone who wore this mask, please call us now. And that's, we know now, that was Jill Tedero had had that experience um, one week prior before uh, Johnny was killed. Uh lured in the exact same method uh, to that to that garage thinking he's going to meet a date uh going to park in the back and and go through the back of the house to the garage but instead encounters a man in a mask and they have this giant fight um uh, and miraculously Gilles is able to fight his way out of there and and escape with his life um you know mark twitchell was really emboldened from from that experience thinking i've learned from that and then it was a week later had actually tried again uh luring this time johnny altinger using the exact same uh method right i guess at the time one of the things that stands out is that jill did not call the police because when he went to try and find evidence of how he had been lured it had been deleted and so he just figured i'm not going to say anything there's nothing to say uh and there was there was mark twitchell planning more uh steve it always struck me that police in this case had sort of started to figure this out pretty quickly. I mean, it didn't take them long before they were starting to put the pieces together. Why was that? What kind of trail had 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 Mark Twitchell left behind? Yeah, I think that's the. Um, I think the interesting thing is there's kind of a cliche with these true crime stories that when you're dealing with a um, you know psychopaths or serial killers or any of these larger than life uh, murder cases that there's somehow a criminal mastermind and that there's some sort of crime genius. And uh, I think what I learned from this is that Mark Twitchell certainly thought of himself as a genius, but his ability was nowhere near that, right? It's that overconfidence that I'm smarter than everyone else, 
which led to his downfall because the amount of evidence that he had left behind was gigantic. And, you know, police have met a thousand liars, right? So um, Mark Twitchell thought he could use his kind of used car salesman tactics to get out of trouble when police started investigating this, but they just saw straight through him and they knew he was lying and they kept digging deeper and uh, it was, it didn't take long until they found uh, really a mountain of evidence that pointed to his guilt. Yeah, there's 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 a specific um, part both in your book and and in the, in the way the story is told about a car, right? I mean, Johnny Altender arrives in a red Mazda, and somehow that same car ends up in Mark Twitchell's possession with a very uh, strange sounding story, and that's where police sort of start to say, "Wait a second, wait a second, this doesn't that's make right. sense at all anymore." Yeah, yeah that's right. Is um, Mark Twitchell kind of got, he got trapped in his lies trying to explain what he was doing at this garage and police were asking questions looking for a missing person and you're filming a horror script. Well, that sounds very similar to, you know, this missing person was also looking for women on a dating site and he had Johnny's car and he had to think of a way to explain that. And he came up with this bizarre story that he had bought a car for $40 off just some random person that he saw at the gas station. And, uh, and he, you know, doesn't know who the guy was, but bought the car, didn't have a bill of sale. And that was the story that he told, uh, to police, which they instantly thought there's no way you buy like a used car for $40, right. Let alone with no bill of sale. So they, you know, had enough for a search warrant and sure enough, the car was there and, and they discovered it was Johnny's car, and there was, you know, forensic evidence that something had happened. Yeah. And at the meantime, you're writing these stories day by day. I know for people, for listeners to understand, sometimes it's hard to see. Once you see something from the from the present, it's hard to see it at, at the time. But you're sort of just writing a story a day. When do you start to sort of talk to your own editors about, well, wait a second, there's a Dexter link here? Because it almost sounds too bizarre to be true. Absolutely. Yeah. Like we had that statement from police the, on the day of the arrest saying that they had evidence that he definitely tried to emulate a Dexter. Um, but it wasn't until later that all the pieces kind of came together that not only was this movie script very much inspired by a, the Dexter series, but then the actual movie set was basically used. All the props were actually real. You know, they weren't prop weapons. They were real weapons. There was plastic sheeting, just like on the show. Um, Mark Twitchell had actually been running a Dexter Morgan Facebook profile and interacting with fans, pretending to be the character. Um, you know, he was fascinated with the character and wrote a lot about his, he saw a lot of similarities between that character and himself. Um, so it sort of un- unraveled over time as we interviewed more and more people in terms of that there are, these links here are more than just a sensational like a kind of clickbait headline, there actually was a significant amount of evidence behind the motive here is very much inspired by this fictional show. Idea, what the hell is going on? You do have an idea. You have a very good idea, Mark, about what's going on. You know exactly what happened there that night. I mean, you haven't told us the truth. You haven't told us anything. Close to the truth. 
It was 15 years ago that those conversations were taking place. That is Mark Twitchell being uh, interrogated or being questioned at least by police in Edmonton over the disappearance of uh, a 38-year-old named Johnny Altinger, who would later be found, at least found dead. And it would unleash a whole story about what became known as the Dexter Killer. Uh, Mark Twitchell, who was later convicted of that crime. But at the time, of course, uh, he continues to deny any involvement in it. Uh, Steve Lillibuen wrote a book about this back in 2013 called The Devil's Cinema. Uh, He's with us. He's an assistant professor of journalism at McCune University in Edmonton. We're talking about the 15th anniversary tonight of the disappearance of Johnny Altinger, how he covered this case uh, and and just how it took on almost a life of its own once all the details became known. Um, Steve, I mean, at the time and even during the trial, uh, Mark Twitchell continues to insist that this was self-defense, right? That he has this sort of elaborate defense that he's come up with about how this all happened, even though all the evidence seems to point to something very different. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. And he, uh, one of the main uh, issues was that uh, kind of the key piece of evidence that police had found against him was a, a deleted document that had been on his laptop had been deleted, but they were able to recover it through their forensics team. And this document was called uh, SK Confessions, which began uh, saying, this is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. And it was this first person account of someone's descent into uh, exploring this violent side to their personality they hadn't seen before. And the prosecution put forward that this was a diary. Uh, This was a a confession, a, a serial killer confession. Uh, and uh, Mark Twitchell took the stand in his own defense to refute that diary and saying it wasn't a diary at all. It was just a fictional exercise. Um, and because uh, he was actually trying to create this big ruse to fool everyone. And uh, it's been ridiculous how everyone's been been fooled and thinks that what was actually fiction uh, is is reality. Um, so, yeah, he took the he took the stand in his own defense and claimed that uh, uh, he had created this. A marketing plan that he had wanted to convince Johnny upon his arrival at the garage to participate in this uh, marketing idea to market the film and that uh, Johnny was supposed to go missing for a while. And then when the movie comes out, it would be a big surprise that people wouldn't know what was real and what was what was fake. Um, And Mark Twitchell claimed on the stand that upon hearing of this plan, uh, Johnny flew into a rage and attacked him. And then Mark Twitchell had to defend himself uh, against this enraged uh, Johnny. And that's how he ended up uh, dying was through a self-defense as opposed to a, a planned and deliberate murder. So that was his what he took the stand and, and said in self-defense or said, said to defend himself in his first degree murder trial. Right. And if anyone was wondering whether the jury was going to buy it, I gather they came back relatively quickly not buying it. They did. I mean, the um, there were some really top-notch prosecutors on this case, but 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 you know, it was really about putting Twitchell's own words back to himself. I mean, this guy is a pathological liar, and he had lied uh, repeatedly to everyone that he knew for more than a year, uh, and then expects people to believe this uh, kind of ridiculous account that it was self-defense. Um, it was only a few hours before the jury came back and and found him guilty of of the planned and deliberate murder of of Johnny Altinger. And then you start writing this book, and I guess in all, you know, every good reporter will reach out to everyone involved in the book and ask if they'd like to take part. And and somehow Mark Twitchell resp- doesn't. He only responds to you. He kind of starts to send you these 
pretty he sends you a lot a lot of stuff yeah i was i was very surprised um i had i had reached out to you know people that knew him and uh, i had not yet actually uh, contacted him directly um but had told them i was interested in talking to him you know once the you know all the court proceedings were over um and he actually called me uh from from prison he uh, I remember clearly he called me and, and he said, you know, if you're going to write a book about me, you might as well come straight to the source. And, you know, that's where we started talking. And, and you know, I went down to the prison to meet him in person. And and we really began a, a quite long period of correspondence where he wanted to write me letters. And I would, you know, write him questions back and then he would write back responses. So we, you know, did that letter writing back and forth for, you know, a couple of years. What was that like for you? Because, you know, it's I, I, if you cover a crime, you sort of, you always try to take one step away from it because the people you're dealing with, I mean, in, in the case of someone like Mark, Mark Twitchell, there's both a fascination and a, revul- and a revulsion at the same time, right? And it, here you are kind of communicating with him, trying to get to the story. And I, I guess you want to watch out that you're not being used. I mean, there's a bunch of things that go on. Uh, and, and yet there, you would have had so many questions to ask him. I wonder what was that, what was that like for you? Yeah, it was it was a, a very bizarre experience, um, you know, that uh, that really changed me in terms of, you know, trying to come to terms with who is this person that I'm dealing with and, you know, trying to guess their motivations or for talking to me. And then what, what he was writing me, you know, he wrote me extensive accounts, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of letters and how much of it could could I trust? Right. How much is his version of events versus the reality? Um, So it actually took a long time to actually sift through all of that to see how much of this is actually usable. Right. Um, And I have no doubt he he had a keen interest in wanting to manipulate me and trying to, you know, portray himself in the best pipe, best, best way possible. Um, But, yeah, it was a a very strange uh, experience. You know, I would write him a letter with, you know, maybe just one simple question and I would get, you know, 10 pages back in response to that one question. So it was really a kind of a deluge of information that I was getting. What's what were the main questions? I mean, I, I, I might be able to guess, but what were the main questions that you were looking to have answered and did he ever answer them? Yeah, in in a roundabout way, yes. I mean, I started. I started with the easiest ones before I finally got to the hard questions. So it was, you know, a lot about your childhood, your upbringing, your interests, you know, when did you first get interested in filmmaking? A lot of that background information about, you know, what makes this person tick and, you know, what, who were they before October, 2008, when, when this all unfolded. Um, so, so I spent a lot of time with him kind of going through those details before that I got to the more, uh, difficult questions, and it was he really did not like the, the difficult questions, which I guess wasn't a surprise. But I, I I do remember the one I asked him, like, and this was long after he had been convicted and had been, you know, all appeals exhausted. And I said, "Do you ever foresee a, a day where you will adopt the Crown Prosecutor's position as your own?" And and he wrote me back pages about how offensive it was to suggest such a thing. So he was still, you know, years after the fact, still trying to deny that, you know, that that they they got it right. It's funny, you know, I was just watching a document, a movie about Ted Bundy the other day, and parts of it remind me so much of, I mean, very different cases, obviously, but they remind me that that, that ability to 
to, to, to try to continue to, to deny what seems to be sort of in controversial, you know, sort of uncontestable facts. Uh, I think at one point, one of the letters that often gets shown uh, that that you point out is he sort of says, "It is what it is, and I am what I am." And you yeah. you're left kind of wondering, what well, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this kind of word word salad of you know that could be interpreted in lots of different ways. It's you know he was he's a very clever individual um, and has a real dark sense of humor. And, you know, you mix that in with some, you know, a very um, traumatic and, and shocking crime. It was it was an odd experience in terms of him ability to go from telling a joke to then talking about something very serious. And and, yeah, I think I think I understood him and by the end of it, but really in a way that um, this is a person who's always putting on a performance, right, that perhaps their whole life they've never really fit in and they learn how to put on masks and you know, whether him talking to me was just another experience he wanted to see what it was like to correspond with the journalist or not. I'm not sure, but, but certainly he knew how to kind of switch and put on, you know, the different modes in order to say, get money from people to finance his films or convince his friends to support him or, you know, try to convince a jury that he's innocent. And clearly that didn't work. Yeah. The, 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 did you ever get any sense, though? I mean, I guess this has come up a lot, too, whether, you know, Dexter seemed to be it was often associated with him. But it feels like he was just he was he was a murder waiting to happen. And Dexter happened to be the thing that came along as opposed to Dexter came along and showed him something that he wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And and I make that point clear in, in the book is that uh, I think there was a lot of U.S. media coverage that went too far, I thought, that we're trying to blame Dexter for what happened. And I, I don't think that's that's right. I mean, it, certainly Dexter inspired this particular crime. Um, but but I agree if it wasn't Dexter, it would have been something else. Uh, Mark Twitchell was going down a path of you know, he was lost in fantasy and fascinated by these sorts of things. And whether it was Dexter or something else, um, I think it was inevitable that he was going to uh, start exploring that violent side to himself. And it was just Dexter was just kind of arrived right at this moment when he was at a transition in his life and starting to explore these things. Yeah, it reminded me I was in Berlin when Luca Magnata was captured. And part of it reminded me of that sort of very almost incomprehensible narcissism of being, you know, the center of attention, of being famous, of somehow. And it's I don't I don't think it's 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 you can't explain it if you don't under if you're not in their shoes. But this idea of fame and notoriety and violence. And it's kind of and I, I see sort of parallels between those two cases without getting into the details of them, but just the motivation was sort of this bizarre idea of being somehow the people and the people didn't matter. They were just the people the victims didn't matter. There was no reason for them to to be attacked. They didn't have anything against them. There was no motive really other than this bizarre sense of self uh, that both these killers exhibited. Yeah, absolutely. The, there was no connection between, uh, you know, Jill, Jill Tedero or uh, Johnny Altinger and Mark Twitchell. The three of them did not know each other at all. Um, they were just the unlucky ones that got swept up in this, this web that, that Mark Twitchell was creating. And yeah, it was all just this selfish interest in wanting to explore uh, extreme violence and, really having the personality where you're not going to be affected by that. And it's, you know, the, whether it's lack of empathy or, you know, Twitchell describes himself as a psychopath in his writings of just, it's just an experience for me. 
right? It's does. I'm not. He wasn't not. You know, most people, if they saw you know a, a real life crime occur in front of them, it would change their life forever. From Mark Twitchell, he didn't have that same sort of emotional reaction uh, to it. But but yeah, certainly yeah, there's similarities to other cases in terms of how the the killer views what they've done. Um, what was interesting about Mark Twitchell, I found, is that I think he did want to keep this uh, secret that like he mm-hmm. he was in on something that people weren't. Um, he really liked those double entendres, which occurred throughout the case where he'd say things like to his his then wife, he'd say, oh, work was murder today. And, you know, oh. to him, that's this sick joke that he knows he's being he's telling the truth, but she doesn't realize that. And. I think that's the that's the kind of notoriety he was hoping for is that he could get away with something and be in on this big secret and his audience would have no idea. Steve, where where I mean, he's still in jail? Clearly, I think I was watching some American uh, coverage that sort of suggested he might be up for early parole. But as far as I can tell, he's meant to be behind bars until twenty thirty six. Is is that is that all still as is? Yeah, that's right. He he falls under um, because this case occurred in 2008. He his case falls under these kind of grandfathered in rules. Um, but there's something called the faint hope clause, where right. after 15 yeah. years, um, someone who is serving a, a life sentence can can apply for the uh, permission to uh, to apply for early parole. So um, this year, after uh, probably in November, he would be eligible to start a process. To, to apply for the right to uh, have an early parole hearing. Um, you know, faint hope is, is rarely granted. And I would suggest in a case as high profile as this, it's, it's success would be pretty close to zero. Um, but he does have that right, you know, so that that's where that coverage, I think, was coming from, was that uh, technically, yeah, this is after 15 years, he could start a process to try to get get a parole hearing. Uh, is he still in touch? Uh, was that, did your communication end sort of back back when the book came out? Yeah, we we spoke for you know a couple of years after the book came out, but um, you know I was basically done with reporting on the case, and and mm-hmm. I, I didn't really have any reason to to talk to him anymore. So um, yeah, it's been a long time since I've heard from him. Um, I did think on the ten year anniversary I was going to uh, reach out because I was thinking of maybe re- revisiting the case, but then I didn't end up. Uh, doing that i've i've heard he's been transferred he's in bowden um uh, penitentiary in southern alberta now but um yeah that's i have not got any updates really in a long time there's still been a lot of interest in this case though even even 15 years after the after the in, the disappearance itself and and you know 12 years after the conviction it's still talked about an awful lot it certainly is it seems like um every few months Someone hears about it and is like, what is the story out of Edmonton in Canada? I've never heard of this before. Yeah, Edmonton, Canada, um, they always call it. Edmonton, yeah. Canada, they always Edmonton, call Canada. it. Edmonton, Canada, yeah. 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 <laughs> I yeah. think if, you know, this had, if this had occurred in New York, I think the, the world would have known about it. But because it was in Edmonton, it, um, it didn't really take off uh, in as big of a way as, as it maybe would have if it had been in another, in another city. So, yeah, every couple of years, there's usually a show. Um, there's a documentary or some sort of series that wants to uh, profile the case or talk about the case. It still still really resonates with people. They're still interested in it. All these years later, I have a few minutes left. What, have, what did you walk away from it with? I imagine this is the, one of those stories that, you know, we all have a few stories that will never leave us. This must be one of yours, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this, 
this case uh, changed me in terms of, you know, I, th- I think of all the people I, I interviewed and, you know, all the people who's, you know, they're real people whose lives were forever changed by what had happened here. And um, yeah, it just resonates with me in terms of um, the impact, right. And even years, years later, right. People even here in the Edmonton film community still talk about uh, Mark Twitchell case. You know, he went to one of the uh, radio and TV schools here and they, you know, they still mention that he was a student there and um, there's, you know, this is one of those stories that Edmonton has that will, you know, live with the city for a long time to come. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to walk us through the book and the case and your communication and all of it. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. You may have noticed the topic of bed bugs seems to kind of creep up every once in a while. If I think back a while, it was New York City had a big issue, and now it's been Paris. If you kind of, you know, obviously I follow different things like the BBC, and all of a sudden bed bugs absolutely everywhere. Uh, Pines de lit, I think they're called in French. But, you know, the French media was was sort of breathless in their in their kind of horror and, and shock about this, the scourge of bed bugs. They've been burning luggage and bed linens, and there's fears about them spreading. Of course, you know, Paris is an extremely popular tourist destination. You can get to Paris from London very quickly on the train. And the fear, of course, is that these bedbugs are going to be transporting their way on the Eurostar back through the channel into London and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all kinds of stuff is going on. So it's become a real big deal. Uh, some people have called it a nightmare. There's been video online that's been shared of bedbugs on the subway, on the metro, as they call it. Uh, and it's very alarmant, as they've been saying as well. People won't go to the movies. And this, of course, is in a city that is always busy. They just had Paris Fashion Week. The Rugby World Cup, if you've been watching that, is taking place in France. And, of course, they have the Olympics next summer. So there are some very deep concerns about why this has happened, how fast could they spread? What does it mean when you have a huge bed bug uh, outbreak or infestation in such a popular tourism destination where people from all around the world are forever coming and going, which is no doubt, I, mean, I don't know how that, that's how they got the bed bugs in the first place. And it also sort of plays into this constant sort of this idea that somehow it happens in one place and it doesn't happen anywhere else. So we thought we'd pull back the sheets, and yes, the pun is intended, pull back the sheets on what's happening there and what's happening here. Who better to do that than Curtis Brown? He's an entomologist with pest control company Orkin Canada. Curtis, thank you so much. Hey, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. I have to make one one real quick uh, uh, amendment. Correction. There. Uh, uh, yes, correct. Sure. I am an associate certified entomologist just with our uh, accreditation. I, I have to okay. say it in that small fashion, but thank you very much for having associate. me. Glad to be here. <laughs> yes, of course. And I'm saying, yes, I, I, I think why we, sometimes we shorten things to make them associate certified entomologist, which means you know your entomology as well, I'm sure. Um, Curtis, you must get these calls every once in a while when the bed bug situation starts to explode somewhere again i vividly remember when it was new york city and now here it is the city of lights paris i mean it's been i mean it's you you yeah you'd think there'd been aliens that landed or something they're so it's so breathless yeah i think that you know in today's you know times when things make the news there there's a lot more attention and focus that's paid to it and of course from a like a such a metropolitan city like paris when something like this is going on um, you know, it garners a lot of attention around the world, but, you know, there are significant bed bug challenges in, you know, Canadian cities. Uh, I'm based in, you know, Victoria, British Columbia, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, Vancouver and, and Victoria and Toronto and all sorts of other Canadian cities have tremendous bed bug challenges. And so, well, I think there's like a lot of attention that's being being paid to some pretty, um, you know, visible uh, activity when we start to see bed bugs on, you know, public transportation like trains and buses or movie theaters. It, it gets a lot of attention, but. Um, I think this this is also something that's happening in, in most cities, you know, most larger urban cities, dense urban cities around the world. I'm in Victoria as well, so you can tell me all about the, pro- the problems here in a minute, because I thought, wait, they, they can't possibly be here. Um, I, I gather that it seemed like we had almost eradicated them, eradicated. It felt like they, they weren't around for a long time, and suddenly they were back. Yeah, that that's that is sort of kind of sort of kind of true uh and so you know (laughs) i mean we can go way back in history so you know bed bugs are are ectoparasites that have lived with humans since the dawn of human civilization uh you know bed bugs uh we we likely took bed bugs uh out of caves when we were a cave dwelling species and so they've been with us for a very long time but you know, after uh, World War II and the, uh, you know, invention of synthetic chemistry and, and during that whole time period, um, uh, you know, we sort of eradicated uh, bed bugs from most of North America and Western Europe, you know, through uh, synthetic chemistry such as DDP and organophosphates. Um, and so for a large period, you know, from the 50s until the 90s-ish, uh, bed bugs kind of seemed to be gone. Um, and people forgot about them really, really quickly. <laughs> and then, they you know, in, did. yeah, yeah they, they, they absolutely did. And then in the, in the nineties and then really in the two thousands, uh, bed bugs came roaring back. Um, and they really haven't slowed down at all. Um, you know, especially in our area, you know, if we want to talk about Victoria specifically, um, you know, as you know, we deal with bed bugs every single day. Uh, in our business. Wow. And so, um, you know, and sometimes uh, we have multiple technicians dealing with multiple bed bug situations every day. I remember growing up, you know, my grandmother used to say, don't let the, you know, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. And I didn't know what she was talking about, right? Like, I was like what, what, what is a bed bug? You know, and here we are. Um, I gather these are not, these are a hardier, sturdier, more resilient little critter than we used to, we used to deal with. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's part of the challenge of why modern bed bugs are, are a little bit more difficult to deal with. Um, you know, bed bugs today have very high levels of insecticide resistance, uh, which, you know, people may have heard about, um, you know, through the, you know, because again, this has been kind of going on for, you know, for the last, you know, 20 years, pretty significantly, and especially the last you know, uh, 15 years. Um, it's You know, bed bugs have been, you know, uh, increasing steadily, but uh, bed bugs today have very high levels of resistance uh, to commonly used insecticides um, and other sort of forms of resistance, uh, which allow them to resist all sorts of treatments that we that we try to, you know, throw at them, um, and hence why they're you know they have a reputation for being very very difficult uh, you know to manage. Once they, I mean, when you look at what's happening in Paris, for instance. Um, 
And you've mentioned, of course, that, again, Canadian cities, it just happens that every once in a while, big cities like New York and Paris, where there's a lot of media and a lot of tourism, that when something like this happens there, it gets sort of magnified, I, I suspect. But what is what exactly is going on? Are there actually, do you think, more bed bugs in Paris right now? And, and how, what are they up to? Because I don't even really know what a bed bug does. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> those are all good, really good questions. I mean, I can't speak specifically to the Paris situation without without being there, I, but I would say in general you know the more dense uh, a city is the more opportunity there is for an insect like like a bed bug um, and so bed bugs are are um, you know a species of insect that belong to a family of insects called simicity and all the the relatives of bed bugs are all parasites of bats and birds um, and so there's lots of other bugs that look just like bed bugs that that only infest bat roosts and bird nests um the the human bed bug that we're talking about is a species of insect called cymex lectularius and and that insect is you know it's very visible to the uh to the naked eye uh, most people sometimes imagine you know that that bed bugs are invisible or super super tiny and well they're they're the early um the juvenile stage of the bug is quite small the adult stage is very visible, often compared to an apple seed, um, you know, okay. in sort of si- size and shape and color. Um, not a great comparison, but, uh, you know, not, not a bad one, just for reference. Um, of course, Google can, can be our friend here, and we can Google, uh, we can Google the bed bugs and look at images of them. Uh, but, you know, bed bugs are, are essentially nest parasites. So they're, they're insects that live in the nest of their animal host, and that being us. And so typically we find bed bugs, you know, we find the most amount of bed bugs aggregating in areas like beds and couches and chairs and places where we're sort of behaving like an animal in a nest. Um, and what happens as we get large, large infestations is as people move those bugs out of those rooms and out of those spaces. And sometimes they get transported to places like, like, uh, you know, trains and buses and movie theaters and hospitals and cafes and, and all sorts of places. Any, basically anywhere where people visit. That doesn't mean that there are bed bugs in all those places. Uh, but, you know, but there can, there can be, right? So people can move bed bugs around, um, you know, when we get sort of these, these pretty large uh, infestations that, that do happen in some, in some people's homes. Right. Do, they walk, right? Are they walkers? Is that how they get yes, it? Because I get yeah, a yeah. luggage is a big one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they, yeah, they don't, they don't jump and they don't fly. Thank goodness. I always joke that when they, when they start doing that, I'm out of business, you know? Uh-oh. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll all be out of business. Curtis Brown is with us. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, uh, they Curtis don't Brown. jump and they is don't it... fly. They, they, they crawl. So they're a crawling insect. They crawl. Uh, they do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Curtis, one of the things I found really interesting is they point this out all the time. I think there was the Guardian interviewed uh, someone who does what you do in London. And he said, by the way, in case you're worried, I've been called by famous people, rich people from castles to cabins. Bed bugs aren't fussy. They don't they don't they don't understand rich and not rich. Yeah, absolutely. You know, bed bugs, uh, their only prerequisite is that your heart is beating. You know, and they they could they they're not concerned about uh, how much you know money we make or where we live or or any borders or anything like that. And so, uh, absolutely, you know, we 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 see the same thing. 
The what is I just had a Les from Hamilton says he worked in pest control back in the 80s and 90s and they would get a bed bug call once a year at most. So it, it really has changed a lot, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a whole host of reasons for that, um, you know, but uh, without, you know, getting into getting into all those reasons, which are only really exciting to people who uh, who love bugs like me. Uh, <laughs> the reality is, is that, you know, that bed bugs are back in a significant way uh, in our communities and they have been for quite some time now, you know. What's the, I mean, I've been reading, you know, people obviously with with this infestation in Paris and then people, of course, in the UK are concerned because there's so much to and fro and people were, you know, resorting to all kinds of stuff about, you know, you got to torch the house or, you know, burn everything that's, you burn all your luggage. What is the right way to try to tackle this? Because there must be a right way to do it. Yeah, there, well, you know what, there's multiple right ways to do it. And so, you know, what I would say first and foremost is that wherever and whenever possible, you know, to manage bed bugs, you really want to consult a professional. And so um, I know that might sound like biased information coming from a pest management professional, but um, there really is, uh, there really is truth and weight to that. Um, You know, wherever possible, consult a professional because not only are there professional, you know, uh, products, you know, and life specific pesticides that, that may need to be used to, um, you know, to deal with an infestation. There's also a whole lot of knowledge about the behavior and biology of this insect that really goes a long way to making sure we don't make a mistake. Um, and so that was, that's what I would say first and foremost. Um, so there, there's lots of different right ways, uh, and really it depends on the level of infestation that we're talking about. Um, you know, the, the, the bed bug problem where there's only you know, 20 bed bugs present is a whole lot different than the 10,000 bed bug infestation, right? 10,000? 10,000? Really? If I could share my, my the pictures on my phone uh, over the radio right now, uh, <laughs> I could show you Maybe some, just some as well pictures I've taken recently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, we, we, oh, we do wow. run into that. We do see, we do see that. So this is, this is an insect. So really the, the concern that we have with this insect is its reproductive potential. Right. If it only reproduced once a year, you know, people would wouldn't be nearly as concerned about it as they are. And so, uh, you know, well, bed bugs bite us. And so they're, they're what's called an obligate hematophagous insect so that they only feed on blood. Um, but there's lots of other insects that bite us that we don't get as excited about. Right. Uh, and so, you know, with, with bed bugs, the, the population can grow very, very quickly. And so, you know, on average reproductive terms in three to four months, you know, we can have upwards of a thousand bed bugs already. And so that's really the sort of, you know, the big concern with bed bugs that left, you know, uh, you know, if not dealt with in a timely manner that we can sort of lead to these really large scale complicated infestations. And so the, the best way to deal with a bed bug infestation is to try to just try to find it and deal with it early and deal with it in the best way possible, you know, at its earliest stage. And again, that's where I would say consulting with a pest management professional is definitely the the right course of action whenever possible. Is there any way, is there anything you should be looking out for to not bring them into your house? I know it seems a bit, uh, it might, might be that easy. Luggage clearly is one. I gather luggage, luggage uh, departments of airports are pretty bad, but is there something you should be looking out for if you don't have yeah. them now? Is there anything you should be looking out for? Absolutely. So, so we, so we, we need to understand a little bit about this bug, right? You know, to sort of prevent it. And so, you know, this bug is very, very good at clinging onto, you know, objects, right? So luggage, backpacks, you know, you know, things like that. Uh, and so, you know, and again, it's, it's sort of selected for clinging onto animals in flight, 
right? Moving from one nest to another. So if we can imagine this bug's very, very good at holding on to things. And so what happens is that we, we unknowingly go into rooms that are infested, whether that be an apartment, whether that be a friend's home, whether that be a hotel room. Uh, and there's bed bugs present in this environment and we unknowingly bring them home with us. So if we're traveling, you know, and we're staying in a hotel or an Airbnb or something of that nature, you know, the best thing to do is to have a little bit of bed bug awareness and to, is to just really quickly inspect our sleeping areas. And what we're looking for is one, the bugs themselves. And again, they are highly visible, you know, the adult stage of the bug you can see with, with your naked eye, but we're also looking for these characteristic sort of inky spots that we see on mattresses and box springs and cracks and crevices, you know, near sleeping areas. And, and that's, that's, you know, it's not pleasant, but that's, that's the, the fecal matter of bed bugs. And so it's a very characteristic, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, color and distinct sort of shape. Um, and it sort of looks almost like uh, speckled mold, if you would. And gotcha. uh, so we, we start to see that around the seams and folds and edges of mattresses and box springs or headboards, uh, you know, especially, you know, right in that, those, those prime sleeping areas. So, you know, Curtis, sort of checking, yep. yeah, looking for those first is very, very important. And then, and then inspecting our luggage when we get home is, is also a good step. Curtis, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Really great to be here. Canadians are, are frustrated uh, and they expect bold and decisive actions from each and every one of us. Uh, this is not just us as a government, but I would say it's us as Canadians where we need to tackle these things. And I think that we need to take, uh, like I say, bold and decisive action. That's certainly what we intend to do. Yeah, that's François-Philippe Champagne, the industry minister, uh, last week talking about groceries. This was ahead of some announcements heading into Thanksgiving about what the government was, the federal government was going to do to try and bring down grocery prices, of course. Uh, rising prices, as we all know, we've spoken about it often, have been a pain point for many of us, uh, and of course, specifically those who find themselves spending a disproportionate amount of their, their income on food now. That's you know the money that's not being chewed up by rent or mortgage payments and so on. Uh, so they're trying to bring in some rules and they brought together the grocery chain execs who've promised to uh, price freezes and discounts on certain items. It all sounds kind of familiar if you've ever picked up a flyer, uh, but apparently this is in the works and they're trying to ease the pain at grocery stores somewhat. But one of the real bargains, and this is specifically true for my next guest because of where she lives, but if one of the real bargains are just a short drive away across the border where despite the fact your dollar is not worth what it used to be. Um, it's still a better deal than buying groceries in Canada. Uh, Brandy Dustin travels to the United States for her groceries. So she says she's saving as much as $80 per trip for food and alcohol. And she's put it all on TikTok to great reception. Have a listen. And I know they say support local, but right now everybody is suffering hugely. We're all trying to make it. And it is so much cheaper for me to go next door than it is to shop in my own country. Now, uh, you're going to forgive this terrible pun, but she had her Eureka moment about five years ago and has been making that trip to Eureka in Montana from Roseville uh, ever since. And she joins me now. Brandy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
I was looking at the map, and obviously it is a pretty short hop, skip, and a jump from where you are into Montana, into Eureka. But, I mean, I've known people who've lived on the border, and it tends to come and go depending on what the prices are like, right? When the exchange rate is bad, people tend to stay home, and when it's good, they tend to cross the border. But you've sort of found that no matter what, it's a better deal. Yeah, it seems that even as the dollar fluctuates up and down, it's I'm still saving $80 plus trip for groceries. What is that grocery sh- I mean, you, obviously there's a bit of gas involved, but you are right on the border, right? You seem to be very, very close to Eureka, just about uh, nine, well, nine miles, I guess, was what it, what it popped up as. Yeah, it takes me about 15 minutes from leaving my house to get to the grocery store, and I have a very quiet border crossing so that I don't have to sit. That doesn't take too much time. It's about $10 gas round trip for me to go down and back and obviously when I'm down there I do fuel up on gas because that saves me a ton of money there where do you tend to find I I realize too on the other side the the nearest grocery store is quite the hike from where you are the nearest Canadian grocery store is quite the drive too yeah so the closest Canadian grocery store to me is a 45 minute so a 90-minute round trip to go to, and I would be spending at least $30 gas in that trip. So by going to the U.S., I'm, I'm saving on gas my own time, and then I'm still saving a substantial amount on groceries. Yeah. I mean, I know Montana has no sales tax, so that helps as well. So there's there's some there's some things, and you live right on the border, so there's some things playing in your favor. But what is it like? I mean, I, I, clearly, I mean, I know because I, I grew up not too, too far from the New York state border uh, in, in Quebec. And, you know, they used to ask you questions about what you were what you were bringing back. And, of course, we'd always say, well, nothing, of course. But in your case, I, I guess I guess you're just bringing back some groceries, so they're pretty okay with that. Yeah, every time I go over, I tell them what I'm going down for. And then when I come back, I tell them exactly like what I've gone for. I'll tell them I grab gas and groceries, and I add my receipts up right to the exact cent. And they'll ask if I have alcohol or anything. I always declare all my alcohol. And they never really go into detail of, like, do you have meat? Do you have produce? Do you have this? It's usually just groceries. And, okay, have a nice day. Right. Where are you finding the best deals when you compare? Because I think a lot of us go to American grocery stores, but if you're sort of on vacation uh, somewhere and you walk into a grocery store, you're not really grocery shopping necessarily. So you probably don't buy or look at the things that you would buy if you were back home. Where have you found the really good deals are consistently? The best deals are in the meat and dairy I'm finding. I'm finding produce kind of aligns with our produce, but... I can't seem to come close to the meat prices. An example, I got a 3.77 pound pork roast for $3.73 US. It was 99 cents a pound. So I don't think Canada can touch that. No, I, I wondered. They, I guess they didn't have turkeys yet, right? (laughs) Because it's not American Thanksgiving. But I'm not sure if you went down there for for Thanksgiving. I actually. I was away for Thanksgiving, and I did crunch some numbers. So for me to buy a 24-pound President's Choice turkey at your independent grocer, that would be my Canadian one, it was $69 this year. And to buy the 24-pound butterball, butter-infused turkey in the States, 
it would have equaled to thirty-seven eighteen Canadian. So a thirty-two dollar wow. difference. <laughs> Remarkable. Uh, tell me a bit about the TikTok thing because that, that's been that's been interesting. It just reminds, I think, you and and so many people and so many of us that are out there are just trying to find any way to save a little money on some of the things that we absolutely have to do, and groceries is one of them. I kept seeing TikTok videos of people showing kind of, I guess, in a sense, the pathetic amount of groceries they were getting for you know I spent one hundred and thirty dollars and I got like six items. And I'd seen it in America and Canada, and I thought, you know, it'd be kind of interesting to do U.S. comparison to Canada and see how much more you're actually getting down there. And even the American prices have come up a lot in the last three years, but you're able to get so much more than you are down here. Yeah, just the, yeah, just the scale. And even in a place like Eureka, right? Like Eureka, Montana is not exactly a sprawling metropolis, but even there you're, you're getting a better deal. Yeah, and it is actually a bit pricier, I find, in Eureka. If I were to drive an hour in from the border and go to Kalispell, which we do sometimes and hit, like, say, the Walmart there, the prices are even way cheaper than they are in Eureka. When you when you posted, I mean, the video, the, the TikTok video, I think has had something like 600,000 views. You must have gotten some people sort of communicating with you, too, about making a similar journey, because I guess a lot of it depends on what your border state is and how far you live from the border, how far the grocery store is, basically, from where you live, and then you have to factor the border into that as well. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion on what people thought they were allowed to bring. I had a lot of people saying, you're not allowed to bring meat, and like I, I said, I... I did my research. I knew I was allowed, and then I even called my my border to confirm it. Oh, wow. So I I was telling people, make sure that you check your restrictions for your area, because it seems in places like Ontario that maybe there are some items over here that were allowed that they're not allowed. So to make sure they're doing their research on their own restrictions and, you know, figure out figure out your numbers if you are closer to... New York, Crossy, and that, it might not be better for you to get groceries there. It's a bit of a more expensive state. But yeah, there was a lot of confusion that people didn't realize that you could cross and actually bring this stuff back. And a lot of people figured, even with the exchange, I was losing out on money when I tediously crunched the numbers, and it's not the case. <laughs> Yeah, at, at 74 cents, I mean, it's pretty low right now. Imagine if we were back up around 80, 85, 90, like it was a while back, and you'd be oh, saving I miss a ton those of money. Days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't we all? Don't we? I think, it, yeah, it doesn't, because it of course, I'm in, in, in Western BC and we're on Washington State's border, and I haven't, I haven't done this in ages, but it, I, it seems to me it is more expensive in Washington State than it is in Montana. So this is something, I mean, it makes sense. For, I mean, obviously, for a lot of reasons, it's much more convenient for you as well than driving 45 minutes the other way. Yeah. Um, but as, uh, we, Prior to, prior to 2018, this wasn't something that you did all the time, right? You used to kind of go back and forth, did you? Anytime I was down in the U.S., I would do a big grocery shop on my way back, but it's, it wasn't worth it for me. I lived at the time an hour and a half away from the border, ah. so it wasn't worth it. But I also lived in a small town that was at the end of the road and had no amenities, so I was kind of used to higher grocery prices there. So now it's it does it absolutely makes sense to drive that much closer. But the uh, the Canadian grocery store that's close to me as well is in a bit of a tourist town, so 
So I find that their prices are a little higher than you would find in other areas as well. Yeah. So I guess it, I mean, it all depends in some senses, but it's sort of an age old Canadian tradition to sort of look up, peek across the border and wonder why it is that it, I mean, we know some of the reasons, but why grocery search can be so much less expensive, especially things like milk. You know, milk is always infinitely less expensive, I find, in the States and yogurt than it is here. Yes. I buy uh, Greek yogurt down in the States for, I think it's three sixty nine for a tub of Greek yogurt in US. And here, they're, Oh, seven dollars to get down yeah. here. I find cheese is a huge one as well that has a big difference. Yeah, our our, our dairy our dairy system is a bit bit rigged. Uh, I, I guess you're going to continue doing this. Are you going to continue making the videos? I guess there's been a really good response. So why not? I think so. Yeah, I'm trying to kind of fine tune and take some criticism of how I can make them better and just more more efficient. But I think there is some interest of just. Even people that don't get to go to the U.S. kind of get to see the the difference. And even if it doesn't make sense for them to shop, it's kind of cool to see the different stuff you can get and just the, the price difference that there is. Um, I actually was on the Oregon coast this last weekend, and I did a quick video from our grocery shop we did down there. So it's a little interesting to see even from Oregon to Montana the difference in the groceries. And, yeah, as long as people like them, I'll continue to do them. <laughs> Well, th- this is the trick question for you, Brandy. So, if there was one, if there's one thing that you still had to buy in Canada because it's just better here, what would it be? What is it? Um, grocery-wise, the one thing. Yeah, I mean, ketchup, chips. There are a few things you could lean on, right? But, there, you know, okay, so, so chips yeah. we don't buy a ton of, but chips are mm. definitely something that is way cheaper in Canada, oddly enough. Really. And I Produce. The produce is a lot cheaper here. It seems we've got some good seasons with our with our BC fruit and vegetables. Of course. Wow, that's good to know. Well, I mean, Brandy, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. It was and and yeah, and I I didn't know much about Eureka, so I did a little tour on Google Maps, and it looks like a nice little spot as well if you're heading down there for for a quick visit. It's very beautiful, and it's got a gorgeous lake right next to it. So if you're ever that way, check it out. Well, thanks so much, and and good luck with the TikTok videos. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening.